guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well as well. Awesome. I'm so happy to be back. I feel like we haven't recorded in forever. I think I looked at my thing and it was like June 26th, which is so long ago now. So so yeah, far away. That just f- feels a little weird getting back into it. Yeah, I think I'll be a little anxious the whole beginning of this, and then we'll get into a flow, and then people will still have things to say about it. But go ahead, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> Another exciting thing happening this week is we are celebrating the two-year anniversary of the podcast. Yay! Yeah. Can you believe it? No, I cannot believe it. It's been a journey. and <laughs> <laughs> Journey is never a positive word people use <laughs> just by itself, just like my life has been a journey. That's never a <laughs> way to explain good things that happen to you. It could be a positive journey. It has been a positive journey. <laughs> but you didn't say positive. You just said journey. <laughs> no, it really, really has. It's been so awesome. And thanks for showing up and recording these episodes with me, Melissa. Happy two-year anniversary. <laughs> Happy two-year anniversary. And we're going to be celebrating that, and we'll give those details at the end of the episode, how Perfect. you can join us in our celebration. Awesome. A quick word before we get started. This week's case is a really, really interesting story, but it has a lot of stronger themes that we kind of don't talk about a lot on the show. So of course, we're going to still do it in our typical Mandy and Melissa way, but maybe this is not going to be one you want to listen to, you know, with your kids in the car or something like that. So this is my fair warning before we get started for this week. To start our story off, we're going to talk about a guy named Ryan Erickson, and he was born to Dennis and Mary Roth Erickson on January 17, 1973. Ryan's father was a Vietnam vet and worked as a prison guard, but had also become an alcoholic due to all the horrors that he witnessed in Vietnam, so it's safe to say that Ryan didn't really have the most stable upbringing. For all of his life, he attended Catholic school, and he felt inspired and called into the Catholic ministry. When he was in his early teens, his parents moved, but Ryan went to live with a priest and only saw his family in the summers when they would go camping together. He attended Catholic schools throughout his life and eventually went on to attend seminary in Minnesota before becoming ordained in June of 2000. Father Ryan was very young, becoming a priest at just 27 years old, but he had extremely traditional values that appealed to those parishioners who sought stricter guidance or maybe followed a more devout path. But even with his old school values, he still had quite a dramatic personality and fervor that attracted a younger group of parishioners as well. Father Ryan was very passionate and emotional, often crying as he delivered mass each week at St. Patrick's Parish in Hudson, Wisconsin. Father Ryan's theatrical performances during mass were well received by some, but not by others. Some of the parishioners were actually nicknamed the Standers because they were the followers of the church that thought that Father Ryan's whole charade was a little bit over the top and maybe potentially insincere. There was some parishioners that would kneel during mass and there was others who just stayed standing. But his charismatic personality made him very relatable to the youth who looked up to him and he was very popular among the teens. Ryan had formed a youth group in spearheaded activities such as hiking and camping where the teens could appreciate nature while enforcing their religious values. Father Ryan spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with the youth of the church, and he really enjoyed spending time with them. It seemed as though things were going pretty well for this community, but a shocking tragedy struck on February 5th, 2002, when one of Father Ryan's parishioners, Dan O'Connell, was found dead along with his young intern named James Ellison. 
Dan O'Connell was a devoted husband to his wife, Jenny, and a very involved father of two young children that were nine and seven years old at the time. He was very involved in his children's lives and participated heavily in the community, including in the Rotary Club, the YMCA, and Boy Scouts. He also volunteered as an EMT and helped with countless fundraisers in his local community. But he was also part owner of the O'Connell Family Funeral Home, which he owned with his father and his brother. The O'Connell family was very well known for their commitment to the Catholic faith and had financially supported local Catholic schools for many years. All this to say, he was really a very prominent member of the community, and he was well known and liked by many. The O'Connell Family Funeral Home had recently hired an intern named James Ellison. He was a 22-year-old student set to graduate from the University of Minnesota in just three months and had only been on his mortuary science internship at the funeral home for a short time. Both of these men were found dead of gunshot wounds inside the funeral home. The gruesome discovery was incidentally made by the county coroner who was just dropping by the funeral home on a routine visit to sign a death certificate. What? That's crazy. Of all people to find a body, the county yeah. coroner? You just Yeah. And this is, of course, the coroner has a relationship with the funeral home, you know, director right. and everything. So they were not only just, co- you know, colleagues, but also friends. It's, it is just bizarre that that's who made that discovery. I don't think I've ever heard of that ever in any thing no. I've ever read that, like, the coroner is actually who found the person. That's pretty wild. So when the coroner entered the funeral home and he couldn't find anyone inside, he went ahead and walked into Dan O'Connell's office, and that's where he found him dead at his desk and saw that the intern had suffered the same fate inside the office as well. The coroner called in the murders, and police swarmed the scene looking for answers to this shocking crime. Almost immediately, police believed this was a targeted attack, but the crime scene was frustrating because there really wasn't much evidence left behind. What they did know was that a 9mm handgun was used to carry out the murders, and they suspected that the killer had some knowledge about firearms and had a steady hand. They came to this conclusion because each of the victims was shot just one time in the head, and there appeared to have been no struggle leading up to these shootings. They believed that whoever had done this had caught Dan and James by surprise, and that Dan O'Connell was the intended target, and James was killed simply for being a witness. In the wake of the gruesome murders, the community was on edge thinking about a murderer just being out there on the loose in their community. Dan O'Connell was an active member of St. Patrick's Parish and was well-liked among the parishioners. As we said before, he was very involved in all things in his community. So Father Ryan actually went to the O'Connell home within two hours of the murders to console this family. The entire congregation was just devastated, and they all looked to Father Ryan for guidance, and he did his best to ease their minds. Three days after the murders, Dan O'Connell's funeral was held at St. Patrick's and Father Ryan delivered a somber homily. At this time, there were still no suspects in the double homicide, but police were actively investigating the very few leads that did start to trickle in. One witness had reported seeing a white male wearing a baseball cap and a light-colored t-shirt just outside of the funeral home around the time of the shootings, but this really wasn't that much information to go on and it never led to any suspects being named. A composite sketch was drawn, but nobody that looked at it recognized the man. Within a day of the murders, police had set up a roadblock in front of the funeral home, and they actually stopped about 300 drivers to ask if they had seen anything unusual in passing recently on on any of their trips back and forth. I don't know why wow. that struck struck me as interesting that they would set up would think to set up a roadblock and say like, "Hey, when you were driving by this area, if this is a route that you take regularly, when you're driving by, have, did you see anything unusual?" That just that almost sounds like they really have nothing and they're having to 
pull at straws. I mean, you know, really like I, I don't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Not saying that's wrong. That's great that they did that. But it does seem like I would never notice anything going on unless somebody was like dragging a body across the street. Another far-fetched theory was that drug dealers were actually responsible for the shootings. And this was because they got a tip that formaldehyde was used to spike marijuana. But I guess they, after investigating this and digging into it, they found out that's not even a thing. And it would turn out that that was just a de- another dead-end theory that they had. Another lead that was investigated was the possibility that a local cult was responsible for the murder. When the investigators had shown up to the crime scene, they located a threatening letter in Dan O'Connell's trash can that was from members of this cult who believed that the practice of embalming desecrates the dead and that a corpse should only be wrapped in a shroud before being laid to rest. Authorities wanted to follow up and question as many cult followers as possible to find out if anybody knew why these two men were killed. But after questioning several people, including those that were actually responsible for sending these letters, they were quickly cleared of suspicion and the investigators were really back to square one with very little left to follow up on. That is so crazy, though, that at the time of his death, there is this letter from a cult, you know, saying you're doing all this wrong. And, you know, it's not like, oh, we found this email on his computer three months ago. He had this in his trash can. That's that is just crazy. The investigation into who had killed Dan O'Connell and James Ellison quickly went cold, but the community was in a constant state of unrest, wondering who among them was a cold-blooded killer. The days turned into months and eventually years with nothing new to help solve this case. During this time, Father Ryan moved on from St. Patrick's Parish when he was assigned to a cluster of churches in a city called Hurley, which is about 200 miles away from where he was in Hudson. He was thriving in his new church, and his style had attracted numerous new followers. His new parish had actually grown by over 50% in the time that he had been there. But two years after the funeral home murders, a shocking secret was going to come back to haunt the young priest and blow this whole case wide open. And we're going to talk about it after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Do you know how to spell tranquil? T-R-A-N-Q-U-I-L. Great. But do you actually know how to be tranquil? Yeah, I don't either. Then maybe you'd like to join me in checking out Sagely Naturals. Sagely Naturals is a line of CBD-infused lotions, sprays, supplements, and essential oils that can really help. Whether you're looking for a little support in managing stress, have some discomfort, or even on days when you work out too hard, Sagely Naturals was nice enough to send us some products to try. We both immediately picked products from the Tranquility line because, well, we have kids. Hi, it's me, your friendly neighborhood rule follower. If the idea of CBD oil is new to you, that's okay because it was new to me too. I was surprised to hear that CBD is actually found in broccoli and kale, but it's most abundant in hemp. That's why Sagely Naturals extract CBD from hemp plants that are grown right here in the U.S. They are also completely THC-free, so you get all the benefits without any of the psychoactive effects. I really love using the Tranquility Roll-On. On days that I can barely keep my head above water, I use it all over my temples and neck. I love how easy it is to just grab, roll on, and an additional perk is that it actually smells really nice and gives me the feeling of tranquility to start my day, especially before the caffeine is kicked in. Sagely Naturals helped me get back to doing the things I love, and I think it can help you too. Go to sagelynaturals.com moms for 20% off your first order. That's S-A-G-E-L-Y naturals.com moms for 20% off your first order today. sagelynaturals.com moms. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find that you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. So at this point in the story, it's the spring of 2004, and it's been two years since the murder of Dan O'Connell and his intern, James Ellison. A college student from back in Hudson named Thomas Smith actually filed a police report alleging that Father Ryan had given him alcohol while he was underage. A priest giving alcohol to minors is, of course, a very serious allegation, but police wanted to speak to other parishioners to corroborate Thomas's story before tracking down and arresting Father Ryan. The more they talked and the more they dug into this, the clearer it became that Ryan Erickson was nothing at all like he portrayed himself to be in the community. This was actually an incredibly dark man with a number of disturbing incidents in his past. Several parishioners were all too happy to tell the detectives how they really felt about the priest. They said that his views were radically conservative and his method of teaching was very emotional. He would often burst into tears at times and people thought it was really strange. Some parishioners described him as simply a very rigid, very traditional and conservative priest, while others thought his views were quite radical. Another unconventional thing that was evidently common knowledge around the church was that Father Ryan carried a gun at all times, and that he was actually a firearm fanatic with a small collection of his own. But since the allegation that was being investigated was that he gave alcohol to minors, the police were focused mainly on digging into his role as a youth leader, and that's how they learned that Father Ryan had been concealing even more secrets. As part of Ryan's youth program, he would allegedly push and manipulate teenage boys to confess their sexual thoughts and desires to him. But this was really just the tip of the iceberg, and it was nothing more than part of the grooming process so that this priest could prey on the innocent and trusting teens that confided in him. Thomas Smith eventually told police that he had met Father Ryan at another church and had been invited by the priest to visit him in Hudson. A short time later, Thomas had gotten into some minor trouble with the law in order to do community service, which he was supposed to be doing under Father Ryan's supervision. Ryan took full advantage of the situation. He would frequently have Thomas over to his home where he would offer him beer and Jägermeister and encourage the teen to drink by playing drinking games with him. This made me sad because this is the person signing off on your community service or whatever, so you don't want to be in more trouble with the police, so you're going to do with this guy who you're supposed to trust and the police trust. Everybody trusts this guy, and they're just getting you into situations you obviously don't want to be in. Just made me really sad for Thomas. The priest would taunt Thomas at this point when he would get drunk and become really sick, telling him that he needed to learn to hold his liquor better before he went to college. 
Thomas stated that there were times he would pass out on the bed and he would have no recollection of what happened the next day, but he would recall that Father Ryan would help him undress and take a shower. Thomas also reported instances of physical molestation on these occasions, and although he said he didn't think it went beyond touching, he still suffers from the experience and has a difficult time being close to his current girlfriend. Other teens from St. Patrick's came forward with similar stories about drinking games and inappropriate sexual conduct. Father Ryan's relationship with alcohol had actually been an ongoing issue since years before he even became a priest. Even while he was attending seminary, repeated reports were made about him being out drinking every night, and he was asked to undergo an assessment for alcoholism in 1998. But sadly, alcohol abuse wasn't the only thing from Father Ryan's past that was repeatedly overlooked. In a psychological evaluation given to him in seminary training, he admitted that he had instances of sexual misconduct as early as age six and went on to have many more inappropriate interactions with his peers all throughout his childhood and teen years. The doctor administering this evaluation found that Ryan Erickson was, quote, problem-free, appeared healthy, psychologically stable, and would make an outstanding priest. Later on, Ryan was asked to have another psychological evaluation, but more focused on his sexual tendencies this time. This was kind of like a risk assessment from what I gathered, and even considering all of the red flags in his past, the evaluator on this test concluded that Ryan's behavior was considered normal, and he did not feel that Ryan was, quote, predatory or exploitative, does not seem to be high risk for acting in a sexually aggressive or manipulative manner in the future. So I have a question. Is this a an evaluation? I know the risk one might be different, but is the psychological evaluation the original one? Is that something that they give to priests in seminary? Is that like a typical test, you know, or were there just signs they saw because of the alcohol issues he was having that that's where they kind of started? I don't know. So I don't want to speak about, you know, what the requirements are in seminary. I got the impression that they were evaluating him just because they had had so many reports and different things about Uh, alcohol abuse. And so I kind of got the impression that they were just doing that for the alcoholism, the first one. One of Ryan's seminary professors had serious reservations about ordaining him as a priest, but in the end, 14 different faculty members voted to ordain him in June of 2000. At this point, you might be asking yourself what any of this has to do with the murders of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison, but this is where these two stories tragically intertwine with each other. In April of 2004, in the middle of the investigation into the underage drinking and molestation, a parishioner from St. Patrick's came forward with an extremely important tip. A school bus driver named Mary Pagel, whose route included St. Patrick's School, told the police that she had run into Dan O'Connell at Walmart on the day that he was killed. The two of them had a cup of coffee together, and Dan asked her an alarming question. He wanted to know if she had ever witnessed Father Ryan touch a child in an inappropriate way. Dan had heard rumors around the church and in the community about Father Ryan's inappropriateness and had become all consumed with getting to the bottom of it and confronting the priest himself. Mary was actually trained in recognizing sexual abuse and told Dan that she had noticed that Father Ryan had paid special attention to the male teens and pretty much all, you know, but ignored the girls. She told Dan to contact the police with the information that he had and pleaded with him not to confront the priest himself. But Dan was very insistent that this was something he wanted to do man to man. And he felt like it was his obligation, his duty to confront the priest about this serious matter. At around 1145 a.m. that day, Mary witnessed Father Ryan leaving the rectory in plain clothes. The body of Dan and James were discovered at 140 p.m. Police continued to investigate and build a case against Father Ryan. 
On November 11, 2004, detectives took a trip from Hudson to Hurley to speak with him regarding the sexual assault allegations, and things really began to unravel for Father Ryan at this point. And we're going to get into the rest of the story after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. It is hot as Hades in Florida, and the last thing I want to worry about is the dreaded combination of slipping bra straps on sweaty skin. That's why I love my Third Love bra. Third Love has changed the way we buy bras. You can skip the trip to the store and find your perfect fit by taking the Fit Finder quiz on the website, which is actually super fun and easy. You can order your bra to be shipped straight to your home and try on your new bra in your bathroom where you eat your night cheese. Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit and are available every day to help via text, chat, or phone call. One of the greatest things about Third Love is their 100% fit guarantee. After taking their Fit Finder quiz and ordering your new bra, when the bra arrives at your house, you can try it on and not only wear it for the day, you can wear it, wash it, and put it to the test for 60 days. If you don't love it within the 60 days, you can return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love is hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever owned, and I know it will be the same for you. With straps that won't slip and my personal favorite, tagless labels, so there's no itching, this is the bra that all other bras wish they could be. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 15% off today. This past weekend, we celebrated my son's birthday by having some family over. I had my husband grab some groceries on his way home from work, but due to my forgetful nature, I left a few things off the list. Neither of us wanted to head to the grocery store since we needed to clean the house and pretend it's always this clean, so instead we ordered Instacart and had our groceries delivered, saving the day and saving our family's general opinions of our home. I love using Instacart for those days when I just don't want to drag the kids to the grocery store, which is any day that ends in Y. If you're not familiar with Instacart, here's what I did. I downloaded the Instacart app, picked out my grocery store from a list available to me in my area, and put in a quick order to be shopped for and delivered to my house by a friendly Instacart shopper. The Instacart shopper gathers your groceries with care by selecting excellent produce, and if there are any issues with the order, they will contact you when necessary. Instacart will deliver your groceries in as little as one hour or at a time you select. They bag them so your hot items stay hot and your cold items stay cold. Try Instacart and get $10 off your first order. To get this limited time offer, go to instacart.com or download the mobile app and enter our promo code MOMS10 at checkout. That's $10 off your first order today at instacart.com or through the mobile app. And don't forget to enter our code MOMS10 instacart.com or through the mobile app with our code moms10 at checkout. Now back to the episode. When detectives finally have this face-to-face meeting with Father Ryan to question him about all this really incriminating testimony, his first reaction was to simply play dumb. Ryan told the police that the boy who claimed to have drank alcohol with him was 18 years old at the time and that his mother knew that they were drinking alcohol. Isn't that still against the law? He wasn't 21, so. Right, yeah. All right. He, of course, insisted that nothing inappropriate went on. He further suggested that he didn't know that this was unacceptable behavior because he did that sort of thing all the time when he was growing up, and so he never thought it was evil or bad. Detectives then tried to gently steer the conversation toward the murders. They tried not to come off as accusatory right off the bat, and they just wanted to talk about it because they knew that he was the priest at St. Patrick's at the time that Dan was murdered. At first, Ryan offered up the bizarre suggestion that the two men may have been killed by the mafia, but then he talked himself into a corner when he suddenly started blurting out all kinds of information about the crime scene that was not previously released to the public. 
When he was asked if he knew any details about how the men were killed, Ryan stated, quote, I think James was going through a door and out a door and Dan was behind the desk. I think that's what I mean. If I had to say what took place, I would say James was at the door and Dan was at the desk. End quote. That is very specific information. Yeah. To- yeah. Like you would not say that if if you did not know that was the case. Right. You wouldn't just randomly say all of that. Right. That's a lot of. Yeah. That's a lot of information to give there. So the detective then asked how many times the victims were shot, to which Ryan replied, I thought one time. When it was pointed out to him that none of that information had been on the news or had been released to the public, Ryan tried to really backpedal at this point, and he claims that he had heard it in passing in some type of chit-chat. Of course, at this point, it was too late, and he had said too much. Detectives conducted over 1,900 interviews during the course of this investigation, and no one ever once mentioned where the bodies were or what the positions were in. They demanded to know how Ryan would know these details, and all he could say was, quote, I don't know why I know that. Which is like the worst excuse of all time. Yeah. Upon searching Ryan's car, police located a 9mm pistol and ammunition in the trunk. They let him go that day, but they asked if he would be willing to take a polygraph on December 14th, which he agreed to. But then after speaking with his attorney, he canceled the test just one day before it was supposed to take place. In the meantime, police continued to get very disturbing information about Ryan. Another teen boy had come forward and reported that he had been at one of Ryan's teen hangout parties and had witnessed the priest pointing guns at parishioners that he didn't like and pretending to shoot them. Oh, my gosh. It just blows my mind that this is this type of behavior is coming from a priest, a person that's in authority and that, you know, the parents trust him and he's doing all of these completely inappropriate things. It just it's not something that you typically think of about happening. So it's just a very shocking situation all around. Right. And how confusing for these boys, because this is somebody they're supposed to respect and they look up to and all that. And then they're they're seeing all this. So I wouldn't think your first thought would be like, well, this is wrong because the priest is doing it. Right. A search warrant was executed on Ryan's home a short time later, which turned up 16 guns, six of which were handguns. They also confiscated in the search Ryan's computer, which turned out to contain pornographic material, including with minors. At this point, the detectives believed that they knew what had happened. They were working on this theory that Dan O'Connell had learned about sexual abuse by Father Erickson, so he set up a meeting to confront him. When Ryan learned that Dan knew about his misconduct, he panicked and went into self-preservation mode, trying to figure out how to cover up his horrifying secrets. In Ryan's mind, the only way out of the situation was to kill Dan O'Connell before he could speak about it. They believe that sometime between 1.08 and 1.22 p.m., Ryan went into the funeral home and shot Dan at point-blank range while he sat at his desk. It is believed that James Ellison came into the room, saw what had happened, and tried to escape before Ryan shot him simply for being a witness. Wow. At this point, the case against Father Ryan was pretty rock solid, and the police began preparing to arrest him and charge him with a slew of heinous crimes. Ryan was extremely rattled and visibly disturbed during this time that police were closing in on him, and this is according to witnesses that saw him and spent time with him during these days. He was very nervous about the line of questioning, but he still denied having any part in the murders. On December 17th, two of Father Ryan's friends went to the rectory to visit him after hearing that he was being questioned in the murder, and they were genuinely very concerned about him. The next night, the same two men had dinner with Ryan, who was upset and on edge, but not really overly so, and the men stayed in the rectory that night with Father Ryan. 
The next morning on December 19th, one of Ryan's friends woke up and greeted him and then went off to get ready for church. A short time later, Father Ryan was found hanging in front of the rectory. He died by suicide two weeks after police began questioning him. In a note left behind, he maintained his innocence in the murders of Dan and James. The O'Connell family still wanted justice for Dan's death, and they requested a John Doe hearing, which would determine that a crime had been committed and who had probably committed it. This type of proceeding is only heard by a judge. On October 3, 2005, a judge heard the case against Father Ryan. Fifteen witnesses testified, and when it was over, the judge concluded that Ryan Erickson probably committed the crimes in question, further stating that it was a very strong case for circumstantial evidence. For the families of Dan O'Connell and James Ellison, this was at least a little bit of closure. It's pretty amazing that they went ahead, went forward with that, you know. I think it's cool that that's even an option in that case. If somebody, you know, dies before they're able to be tried for a crime, I think for the families, especially in a case like this where there really is a lot of evidence against that person, you know, circumstantial. I think in this case, there really was a lot of evidence that that's exactly what happened. What the police had put together was exactly what happened in this case. Right. Mandy, last thing before we go. Are you ready yes, to get into that? Okay. The first question comes from Jenny in our Facebook group, and hers is, what is your least favorite random household chores? Hers is cleaning out the fridge. What you got? So I agree with cleaning out the fridge, but I'm going to take it a step further and say organizing anything at all, literally ever. So this includes closets that get disorganized, you know, that have, whether it's games or towels, sheets, whatever it is. I don't like organizing closets, medicine cabinets, kids' toys, my whole garage. Oh, gosh, pantry, garage. Any, anything, really anything that requires me to take everything out and then put it all back in is the actual worst thing I can think of. I just hate doing that. It's, it's terrible. No, that makes a lot of sense. It is terrible. But see, to me, I get more satisfaction out of that because that will stay organized more than like cleaning up my living room. If I clean up my living room, my kids come in there, it's a disaster. But if I clean up the medicine cabinet, I get more satisfaction because when's the next oh time gosh, somebody's going to have should, a headache? Yeah, I should start looking at it the way you do. I would have a much more positive outlook. But yeah, I just dread doing anything like that. There's a, like there's so much stuff I don't like doing, like scrubbing showers and bathtubs. I hate like bending over and having to like, I hate having to do that. Cleaning out my car, obviously, that's not my favorite thing to know. <laughs> that's on both of our <laughs> lists. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah, what do you have, Melissa? Mine goes with the shower thing, but it's we have the glass door in our bathroom and you can clean that every day of your freaking life and there will still be like soap scum on there. So I feel like even when I clean it, it's never perfect. And so I try to make it perfect. And then I see like residue from like the paper towel that I've cleaned it with and I like scrub it with baking soda. I get really into it, but it makes me rage because it's never going to be clean. Like it's going to always have a little bit of scum on there. Somebody's going to touch it and it makes me, it makes me crazy. I also hate unloading the dishes. I'd rather wash everything by hand than load the dishes. But I feel like they're cleaner when they go through the dishwasher, like all the heat and stuff, (laughs) like AKA (laughs) how a dishwasher works. I feel like that I have to put them through that, but I will always, there's like three things that are in the um, utensil area that I will never take out of there. Like they're, they're just like odds and ends, like a corn. What are those corn pieces that you can put on both sides of a corn on the cob to eat? You know, those little corn, they look like corn on the cob things. Yeah, I know. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> Those I little corn always, pieces. I, I would call them corn holders or something. Okay, fine. If you want to be fancy, we'll call them corn holders. <laughs> so those are like always in the utensil area in my dishwasher. I just never take them out. Like I take out the bare 
I don't know what my problem is. I really, really, really hate it. But organizing and stuff I like more as I've gotten older because I feel like it stays clean longer. So psych yourself up, Mandy. It's much, much better. (laughs) And so the other one we had, and I'm trying to find it, and I'm not seeing specifically who asked it. And I'm so sorry. If we asked your question and we did not use your name, tell us, and we'll try to remember to do it the next time. Is that terrible to say? The, this is basically like two truths and a lie, but it was three truths and a lie. So Mandy is going to say three true statements to me and one lie, and I'll say three true statements to her and one lie, and we have to pick what the lie is from each other. Right? Am I explaining that okay. right? Okay. Yeah. All right. You want to go first? Okay. So first thing, I nearly died when I was a child. Okay. I once put a diaper on a chicken so I could have it inside my house all day. So freaking help me if that is not the lie. I'm going to be so pissed at you. Go ahead next. I had a severe phobia of sponges as a teenager, like a kitchen sponge. I would not touch one. Okay. And I attended 10 different schools between kindergarten and 12th grade. Ooh, okay. So I think I think the sponge thing is true because you've told me that story with your grandma wiping things and then I think wiping people's faces or something. That's terrifying yes. and is still upsetting to me. <laughs> yes. My grandma used to take a sponge and wipe the counter and then she would wipe my face with it when I was really young. So I think that's where my deep-seated phobia – I don't like to call it a fear. It's more like a phobia. I just really don't like touching a sponge. Well, no. Good. Very, so very good reason. Obviously, that's a true. That so obviously, true. that's a true statement. <laughs> you did almost die as a child because your appendix appendix burst. So I know that's true. I think you went to 10 different schools growing up. I think the chicken thing's a lie because I don't think you put a, a diaper on them. I think you just hung out with the chicken and you didn't think to put a diaper on them because you were just, they were just <laughs> sitting on you and you would gladly just pick up their poop and move it around. Am I right? <laughs> Yes, you're right. I have Yay. never put a diaper on a chicken. But I totally thought you would be fooled and think like that was something I would do. Oh, I totally believe you would do it. But I don't know. I just that last one, the school thing was so big, not big, but so detailed that I thought maybe that would be true. Hmm. I don't know. Wow. There you go. I don't know. Okay. Mandy, are you ready for mine? You're going to know. I think you'll you'll find. Okay. Mine's kind of tricky though. So my first one is I went skydiving when I turned 18. I eat candy in rainbow color order. When my husband and I were engaged, we celebrated by eating at Melting Pot. I referred to myself as an ogre in high school because I thought it meant tall person and no one ever corrected me. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know it meant monster. I thought it meant tall person. Wait, never mind. I can't help you. Go ahead. A hundred percent. You do not eat your candy in color coded fashion lies I eat every M&M Skittle anything if you see everything I put in my hand I eat it red orange yellow green blue purple brown black white that's how I eat everything I 100% do that (laughs) I won't eat candy if I can't see yeah I remember one time being in the car when I was little and had gummy bears and I'd have to hold them up to the like light outside to see what color it was to eat them if you see whenever I put them in my hand I always eat them in like I eat certain ones at a time I don't announce it wow yeah okay it's a sickness okay so well I know you went skydiving I went skydiving I know you celebrated at melting pot that's not true I celebrated at <gasps> Outback Steakhouse <laughs> <laughs> how sad 
bad is that? That's much more on brand than Melting Pot for me. Outback? Yeah. We went to the- Melting Pot has like melted cheese you can dip stuff in. How is that not on brand? It's, oh, it's very on brand, but it's more expensive. And Outback's today, cows, <laughs> meat, and steak, and bread? Come on. Me and Meredith Palmer have that in common. We both love Outback Steakhouse. So I figured I would trick you on that one. So that's it. You did. Yay. You totally tricked me. I, I feel like that's not fair, though, because I feel like you do go to Melting Pot sometimes for occasions. Yep. So you did trick that me. That was a trick. I got you. I got you. And I definitely <laughs> called myself an ogre all the time. And no one bothered to tell me that, that it did not mean tall person. It was a really rough day when I found <laughs> out I had been calling myself just a very big monster. So anyway. All right. Well, that, that was good. <laughs> Hope you learned something about us. We learned something about each other. Mandy learned that I she's got to watch me when I eat my candy. And so we before we go, we are going to play a promo from Rebecca. And she has a podcast called Die A Log, D-I-E hyphen a log. Uh, very punny. I like that. And she hosts a true crime trivia show, Yellow Tape True Crime City. And she does some traveling around. She's doing it at the True Crime Fest in Chicago this weekend. But by the time you hear this, that'll be over. Sorry you missed it. So make sure you check that out. She's really great. We met her at CrimeCon. She's awesome. Mandy, let's talk for a second about our two-year live event. Two, I wrote Yay. that as the note. Okay. That does not make sense. But yes, what is our event? What are we yeah. doing? So last year on our one-year anniversary, we did a little video. It was kind of – it was like a sweet 16 party. So we're not doing that this year. We're going to keep it much more relaxed. You know, second birthday is not as big of a deal. So – we're going to do a live video in our Facebook group. If you are not in our Facebook group, you can find it at Mums the Word on Facebook. And if you get in the group and you first thing you question is whether or not you're in the right group, <laughs> then you are. And it's wonderful. So you can find the event page that Melissa created in there and learn a little more about what we're going to be doing, which hopefully we will have posted by the time this episode comes out. I'm not even sure what we're really doing. We're doing a live video. We're yeah. going to play a game. We're going to eat cake. Yeah, we'll do. It's going to be a great, great time. Yeah. You have to bring your own dessert, bring your own dessert, or if you don't eat desserts, bring up some other snack, take a picture, send it to us. That's always fun. And we're going to have cake. We are going to play a couple games and we'll just do a live video. It's weird. And we'll do it really weird. Like the people that do like the Facebook lives and open things. Like a whole lot of, hey, Sharon, yeah. <laughs> how you doing? How's your niece? Blah, blah, blah. So we'll make it really weird. Yeah. Melissa wishes that she had a pearl to open. I wish um, I it was a pearl party <laughs> and I had a million oysters. That's what I wish. So it is on July 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time because I don't stay up late. Mandy, well, I do stay up late, but I don't stay up late and talk to people. That's for sure. So it's a Saturday. Check that out. We will be doing that. And then we'll be back next week and the week after. And we're back to weekly shows. All right, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, host of Dialogue. I'm also the creator and host of Yellow Tape, a true crime trivia show in New York City. In those live shows, I cover the who, what, and when of popular true crime cases, but I can't always deep dive the way I'd like to. That's where this podcast comes in. Dialogue picks up where yellow tape leaves off. Each week, I'll be interviewing professionals, podcasters, and players in the true crime space. We'll attempt to answer the why of true crime, why we love it, why it happens, and what are we even talking about when we talk about true crime? And yeah, we'll probably play some true crime trivia too. So, are you ready to explore the heart of true crime with me? 
I think we'll have a killer conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Dialogue on iTunes today and download the premiere episode of Dialogue wherever you listen to podcasts starting July 31st. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.